Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This time on Vet Story. Former Night Stalker David Burnett out with an amazing new memoir. It also deals with his personal battles back here on the home front. All I'm doing is working on this damn thing. I want to I want to be in the fight. One of the most elite and secretive units in the military. There were two Chinooks going in to land in this bad guy's front yard. You know, the buildings are getting closer as we start to descend, which I was behind a 3,000 round a minute minigun. I see three guys on a rooftop. I see a plume of smoke leave his shoulder and I, I froze up. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, middle of the night taking shots of Jameson and then wake up in the morning and start with a pint of Jameson. Would take out all my anger on her, even though she did nothing wrong. I had to, uh, you know, deal with that problem. That any veteran struggling, um, going through the same hurdles that I went through, they're not alone. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and our guest today is David Burnett, and he's going to take us on an inside look at the elite world of SOAR, or the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. David made it through the unit selection process, and his journey began as a Special Operations Crew Chief. These are the guys that insert the combat element. Guys like Rangers and Delta Force and Green Berets. I mean, wherever there's Special Operations Command doing missions, the 160th is how they get in and out. Known as the Night Stalkers, these guys' combat missions have an added degree of difficulty. They're done in the pitch black of night. Whether it's Rangers fast roping onto the roof to catch a high-value target, or whether it's laying down suppressive cover fire so that they can get out alive. The book, Making a Night Stalker, talks about it all. And it also talked about some of the darker days that followed his deployments. And here to share it with us all is David Burnett, author of Making a Night Stalker. David, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Phil. And it sounds like both our military careers, we can kind of relate to, to some things on a certain level. So I look forward to diving into this podcast and kind of being able to relate on that level. Yeah, man. First, let's just compare levels. Um, I was on a carrier, and uh, you were right there, forward deployed, leaving from the FOB to the insertion point of the combat mission. I mean, I saw the planes take off with bombs. I saw I saw them come back without bombs. You got to right. see the fireworks <laughs> firsthand, man. And um, I got to say... Tell me about that. What was it that made you choose the 160th? Because I know, like many of us, we go into our service, we get an MOS, and then we maybe cross-train into something that we really want to do. Why on? Why in the hell would you want to join a division that's basically dropping in to the fiercest fighting in the war? So my first deployment was Big Army. I was working on 
Chinook helicopters uh, day in, day out, just in the hangar, wrenching on these things, tearing them down, putting them back together so other people could go fly them over the wire and drop bad dudes off to kill really bad dudes. Yeah, man. And I was like, all I'm doing is working on this damn thing. I want to, I want to be in the fight. This is, you know, I didn't really feel fulfilled. And so I, I found out to progress into a Chinook crew chief slot or become the subject matter expert uh, from the enlisted side on board, the, the one that the pilots rely on if there was any mechanical or electrical failure while in flight and be in charge of everything from the cockpit back, in order to fulfill that role, uh, I had to essentially apply to 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. That was the only way to progress my career and become a crew chief. So found out that's what I had to do, filled out a long application I got accepted. Well, not accepted. I I was afforded the opportunity to try out when we got back from that deployment. So back to the States after 13 months in Bagram, Afghanistan. And then two weeks later, I found myself in their selection process, which is known as Green Platoon. Now, talk to me about that. You cover that in the book. And I find it's fascinating because for a lot of jobs, you have to meet the proficiency requirement of the specific skill. You know, you're going to be an airframes mechanic. You got to know mechanics and you got to know what bird you're working on. But you guys, you had yeah. to actually fulfill like some of the combat requirements as well, because you guys are working with Rangers. You're working alongside like Delta. I mean, you, you, you've got to be a warrior through and through. Yeah. And pretty much every special operations force uh, through all branches have, a type of selection process because you're essentially moving up to the tip of the spear and the, the people administering these courses want to know that you're going to give a hundred percent when in not only in training, but when you're in the fight in in the worst of times next to some of the most elite dudes in the U S military. And so they implement, you know, physically and mentally demanding things throughout this course to make sure that you're the guy they want next to you in the fight downrange. And so we started with about 86 candidates in the class and graduated about less than half over those five weeks. And then uh, I was thrown into another year plus of training, which became kind of my pipeline to becoming a crew chief. So like they're making sure your weapons proficient and then the psychological aspect, like they f with you the same way that they do the special ops guys, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, they give you kind of impossible tasks that you have to complete that, you know, it's not going to happen. So they kind of want to retrain your mind to start thinking not only outside the box, but to start thinking as a team and not as an uh, individual trying to do one thing while your buddy goes and does another thing. Amazing. And you hear the 160th referenced when you read all these books about the special operations community, whether it's a Green Beret that writes a book or a Ranger that wrote a book or, you know, Delta and SEALs. I mean, these guys all, you're the lift in and you're the lift out. As you deployed and you went forward with your career in the 160th, is there one in particular, one mission that just stands out? Like when it really, like the first time you knew that this was real and you were born to do this? Yeah. Uh, and it was night and day compared to my first, deployment with big army working in the hangar then i finally get through all of the training to where i can actually deploy with the unit 
as a Chinook helicopter crew chief in the most elite aviation unit in the world. And we had gone, it was my first week in country with the unit and we had done about three missions uh, and there was nothing significant. It was all stuff that I could uh, recount back to training and, and really feel like I was adding value and, and being a, a good crew chief. Uh, but on the fourth night, uh, that that's when things kind of shifted, and where I realized, okay, wow, this is this is real, and this is why we're the tip of the spear. So it was a two ship infill, meaning there were two Chinooks going in to land in this bad guy's front yard, drop these rangers off so they could run into this dude's house, uh, either kill or capture him, and then. Uh, sweep the rest of the compound to make sure there are no other bad guys. So we're about 30 seconds out from landing. I was in chalk one on left gun, which I was behind a 3,000 round a minute minigun, which we uh, learned and learned again in uh, training through that process. So I was very proficient with the gun. And about 30 seconds out, I notice on the left side of the aircraft, you know, the buildings are getting closer as we start to descend. I see three guys on a rooftop kind of perk up. And one of the dudes uh, put something on his shoulder and it appears to be some sort of shoulder fired weapon system. Mm. You know, it, it all happened so fast. So I, I couldn't be like that was this type of weapon. I just knew it was a weapon. Yeah. 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 And, um, I see a plume of smoke leave his shoulder and a uh, propelled grenade kind of takes off and ends up splitting. uh, I guess, according to Chalk 2, later find out it it barely missed our aft pylon. So it kind of split both helicopters, the nose of Chalk 2 and the tail of our bird split in between the two. And then, you know, you could you could train till you're blue in the face shooting, you know, tanks or whatever back in the States on an aerial range. But when someone actually shoots at you for the first time, I kind of, you know, I'm not I'm not going to, you know, say I was the hero or whatever, but I, I froze up. And uh, it wasn't until left ramp started engaging the roof. I was like, oh, shit, this is real. I have to shoot now. <laughs> so so uh, both left side of both aircraft, we just started lighting up the building and the dudes on it. And then, uh, now we're like 10 seconds from landing and we land and drop these dudes off. Like the whole getting shot at thing never even happened. You know, we just continued the mission and, uh, yeah, that was my first taste of real combat. And it was like, Whoa, this is real. That's crazy. And thank you for sharing that. I know the pucker factor probably still kicks in when you think about that memory. Um, yeah, yeah, but absolutely, absolutely awesome. What I love about envisioning kind of what you guys do is not only do you have to like get in there and you may be shot at on the way in, but then when they're descending, when the Rangers, you know, the guys in, you know, the 375 are getting out, they're fast roping down. So you have to like what hold position over a compound while they get on the ground and that leaves you what sitting there completely exposed for how long does that whole process take? Like uh, 60 seconds, a minute and a half, three minutes. Yeah. So if it's a fast rope insertion and that will be briefed beforehand before we go in, like if we know that the LZ is too tight and there's really nowhere to land, you know, a giant flying school bus, we'll look at potential 
buildings to hover over to where these guys can fast rope out the back. And that whole process, uh, depending on how many dudes you have on board, you know, if we have 20 guys, that might take 30 seconds to a minute, depending, you know, how, how quick they're moving. And, you know, I mean, these dudes have a lot of gear on. So when you get on that rope and you're, you're flying down that rope, you know, sometimes guys don't land on their feet when they hit the roof. And so you guys up top, we have to kind of hold them to wait until they're clear. And uh, yeah, so anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute. So we're kind of vulnerable at that point. And then once we release the ropes, uh, to the ground or to the rooftop or ramp up and out of there. Mm. Now, you guys work, obviously, as the name implies, at night because, let's face it, we own the night over there. Uh, you know, they don't have necessarily the equipment that makes them uh, good fighters at night. So rather than getting shot up and fighting on their terms, we like to go at them in the middle of the night. How are you able to cite potential hazards or, you know, insurgents or enemy fire um are you guys wearing nvgs while you're manning the guns or are you do you have like thermals or how does that work the unit was coined and nicknamed the night stalkers and so that means primarily we only do missions at night so that's that's part of the pipeline process and the training is you're you're pretty much everything you're learning in the day you have to be just as proficient or more proficient at night on uh, utilizing night vision goggles. And so all the crew chiefs wear them, the pilots have them on, and then we have guys in the sky throwing down some IR lights from 20,000 feet above to kind of point out different uh, obstacles uh, along our flight route to the target. And so that helps us. And then we have some other fancy technology on the aircraft that I won't get into, but it's a lot... Is, is a lot different than what uh, big army Chinook has on their aircraft. So that's kind of what makes our Chinook variant a little more special as we have some of those uh, Gucci kit items that allow us to uh, see where the obstacles are and see where the bad guys are before they see us. And I think that one of the cool things about that is, like you'd said, you have to be just as good at doing things at night as you are during the day. That's everything from tying your shoes to loading a weapon to finding like whatever the chalk chains or like, you know, the tie down things on the sides of the aircraft inside. I mean, that's just, do you find you're better at getting around your own house now at night? Like, can you, like, because you've had that training, like, are you capable to like walk through the dark and get something to eat in the middle of the night without turning any lights on? Yeah, I am. And I, I kind of got gotten it down to a science where like, I know the exact number of steps to take to go from, upstairs to downstairs and i know how many steps are go from the first floor to the basement and so stuff you know as far as counting my steps i do that at night just so if it hit the fan ever at the house and there were an intruder you know i would know my house inside and out you know under the cover of darkness <laughs> that is so cool and that and and like that part of the training has never left you you'll be doing that until you're you know a grandfather for crying out loud that is that's awesome. Um, you know what else is kind of cool that I know vet to vet I always like to ask about, and that is some of the downtime. Uh, we're notorious for, like, pranking each other or busting balls or doing stuff. Um, were, there, were there any great stories from the FOB or anything that was done to you when you were the FNG, you know, the new guy? Yeah, I mean, ca- countless. Um, 
you know, I, I, I think I had it easy compared to when newer guys started coming up and I was kind of more a senior guy. Uh, one particular event I can remember is, uh, for, for some reason, this, um, this bee hut we were staying in had just a box of these sticky mouse traps in the, in the corner. And like, they weren't being used and they're all brand new. Um, they're like these, um, plates and you peel them off and then you put them on the ground and they're like super sticky. And so we put a bunch of them in front of this dude's door. And when he woke up, uh, in, you know, in the middle of the night or in the morning or whatever, he, he stepped on all these sticky traps. So he's walking around with all these things stuck to his feet. And that kind of led to an all out kind of prank war from boarding up dudes in their room with, you know, we took two by fours and hammered dudes uh, doors completely shut so they couldn't even get out. And I mean, you name it, it, it we pretty much did it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And that's the stuff I always love to share about life on the fob because, you know, so many people think it's just, you know, hours of nonstop action. And when in fact, you know, there's a lot of hours between the missions and then, and you know, the mission planning can take days. Sometimes you guys are just sitting around drinking rippets, busting each other's balls, finding ways to mess with each <laughs> other. And uh, that's something that's universal. We did it on the ships while we wait for you guys to come back too. Oftentimes we would, uh, you know, find new and inventive ways to, uh, make fun of each other. All right, then we transition out and we go back to uh, civilian life. Get your DD-214 in hand and talk to me about your transition because I know as we get to writing this book, uh, this book was actually part of that transition that wasn't going so well. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, you go from 300 miles an hour to zero in a split second. And, you know, I didn't think, you know, I've heard stories about veterans committing suicide and struggling with transitioning into civilian life. And I told myself, oh, that's ridiculous. That's not going to be me. Uh, but probably about a good six months after I got out, I started uh, isolating myself and I became pretty lonely, you know, and I, I realized that, you know, I wasn't the go-to guy anymore. You know, I didn't know all this classified stuff that was going to happen in the next week or so or where we where were we going to be deploying or any of that and so i i felt kind of lost in this civilian sector so i turned to alcohol and that was my that was my coping mechanism which is not a good coping mechanism um so i became really alcohol dependent and finally uh i was able to seek some help through the VA and the counselor told me to write down kind of the stuff I was thinking about or some of the nightmares I was experiencing, just write it down. You know, I thought that was the dumbest thing ever, but at that point I was ready to try anything to negate kind of what I was going through. And so I started journaling, you know, one sentence here, one sentence there. And then these journal entries kind of manifested into a chronological timeline of my time in service and at about 50,000 words worth of journal entries, I, sa I said, this, this is going to be a, a book. And so I didn't set out to write a book in the beginning, but it just kind of turned into that. And I, I finally was able to stop drinking. And then once I did that, then I was able to complete the book in like three months. And then I, I got it sent to the Pentagon for their review. 
but it was definitely a process in transition and I'm, I'm still transitioning. I don't think we ever stop transitioning. We're always trying to better ourselves uh, just because there's little nuances that we have taken away from the military that, you know, some are good, but some are bad. So I'm, I'm always trying to better myself, but by omitting alcohol from my life, I've been able to kind of uh, see life from a different set of eyes versus, you know, always being drunk. So yeah, it was definitely a process, but uh, I'm glad I was able to write about my struggles in the book. Cause I, I think a lot of books that portray uh, wars or memoirs on military service uh, fail to highlight that part of the journey. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask next is I haven't got to the end of the book yet, but like you do get into the fact that or you do detail what it was like, like how the drinking ramped up. It went from like happy hour with some neighbors to like whatever, I some day drinking to were you at the point where you were waking up and having drinks kind of first thing or Yeah, I was uh, you know, middle of the night taking shots of Jameson and then wake up in the morning and start with a pint of Jameson. Normally by the afternoon, that pint would be finished and I would move on to uh, a 12 pack of Coors Light. Mm. And by the time, you know, by the time my wife got home from work, I would take out all my anger on her, even though she did nothing wrong. And if I was even still awake, you know, or she would come home and I would be blacked out. So that was definitely not conducive of a healthy relationship in terms of the marriage. So I knew, you know, for that reason too, I had to, I had to, uh, you know, deal with that problem. Uh, luckily I was able to do that. Well, amazing. You found it via writing and even more amazing as we get to read about it because, uh, those journal entries did turn into this, uh, incredible book, making a night stalker, even for the cover artwork. I mean, I guess as a carrier guy, I'm just jealous because like, not only did you guys get like the cool headgear and everything, but you had that like mask, over your face, and you guys look like regular freaking stormtroopers, dude. That's just absolutely awesome, and I'm glad you were able to compile all this and get it out, share it with the world. And you're not only just sharing a book now, but you're also kind of an inventor, so to speak. Talk to me about um, the tack clamp. Yeah, so I actually started the invention and design process as soon as I got out of the military in 2014 because I saw a problem that guys faced when they came on our aircraft. There's really nowhere to for them to hang their stuff. And so when they did hang their stuff, they kind of created their own inventions or ways to hang stuff with carabiners or straps or whatever. But when they were when that went to exfil the aircraft, you know, they're struggling to unhook this thing because they hooked it up under lights and now it's all blacked out. So they can't get their stuff off. So we're sitting on the target longer than we have to. So this clamp essentially is a mounting point uh, that you can clamp anywhere on the aircraft or Humvee or any type of mode of transportation in the military. The soldier can hang their gear from it. And whenever they have to go, they simply pull a strap and it releases whatever's hanging from the clamp. And so it's, it's still, still pre-revenue, but um, I, put all my focus in the book. So now that that's done and out there, now I'm focusing all my energy on uh, really ramping the clamp up. So I met a company at Heli Expo in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, 
biggest helicopter convention in North America and met with a company who's interested in purchasing the IP and doing all the manufacturing for me. So we're still in negotiations with that, but, but things are looking really promising in terms of getting this thing out to soldiers and, and on the battlefield. If I can suggest, call it the Night Stalker Clamp. I think that sounds so cool. (laughs) (laughs) And also, uh, just raising my hand here in case you ever should wish, but uh, if it does go to the infomercial phase on uh, QVC, I would love to be your pitch guy and be like, you know, check out the Night Stalker Clamp. Dude, if you've ever been a Chinook helicopter and you need to hang your M24, you could do it with this right there, middle of the night, no sight. You get it hung on the side. But, hey, let's just say you have a 12-pack of beer and you're fishing. Look at this. It also holds it on a boat. Look at that. (laughs) You're hired. (laughs) That's awesome, man. Well, I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, David. And, uh, you know, from tip of the spear to, uh, you know, rock bottom to all the way the top of the charts with this new book, man. I really look forward to seeing how well you do and want you to know that uh, you gotta, you've got a home here on Vet Story. Anytime you want to come back, talk to me about your next book. We want to hear from you and um, definitely want to hook up with you, man. So when you find yourself doing your book signings in the Washington, D.C. area, man, give me a holler. Okay, I definitely will. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, having me on and letting me talk about my story on your platform. And, you know, hopefully your audience takes something away from it. And, uh, yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing how the next book starts to take shape. I'm kind of in the process of working on the storyline right now, actually. I'm telling you, buddy, they're addictive. Once you write one book, I know your publisher's going to be like, come on, I know you got another one in there, David, and you got a hell of a lot of cool <laughs> memories, I'm sure, to share. The book is Making a Night Stalker. It's found everywhere you find books. David Burnett, you're the author, buddy. Always good to have you, man. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon.